Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Three Film Feature. We have quite the films to feature this week, including one of the best films ever made, His Girl Friday from Howard Hawks, and two movies I don't like. The Percy Jackson movie, The Lightning Thief, and New Year's Eve from Gary Marshall. A bunch of bad stuff. <laughs> but hey, Howard Hawks is there too, so let's hit it. His Girl Friday. That's right, folks. We're back talking one of the most monumental films, I think, in my life. A couple years back, we talked about Casablanca. I, I said that's my favorite movie ever made. It still is. It is the thing I love the most in this world in terms of film. Right behind Casablanca. If that is the gold standard for me, the silver goes to His Girl Friday from Howard Hawks. This is the exact type of movie that is perfectly made for me. A screwball comedy that is just loud and fast. And there's a million things being said every minute. We hold on takes for so long. I absolutely love this movie. We have talked a lot about Howard Hawks on this channel before. He is my favorite director. And because this is one of those monumental films for me, it's one of the ones that I struggle to talk about the most in this capacity. I know I could probably do it more justice in a longer format if I actually like delved into every sequence and every specific detail. But with a show like this, I don't know how far in we can go. And especially with a movie of this nature is all of it is just jokes. It is just repeating things that are said in the movie. So I don't know how far like that we can go into things. All I can tell you is this is the perfect movie. I think it's shot beautifully. I think it's a beautiful script. You have so many character actors just popping in to do very minimal jobs of just the funniest people you've ever met. And it's just about the newspaper industry and just really like those glory hounds, those people who are hungry for the story, who don't really care about human life in that capacity. It's an extreme example of that, and that can be annoying, and, and maybe it's a little lame, but for me, like, come on. You know, I, I went to school for journalism. I've studied this kind of stuff. It's so fascinating to see this world executed on this scale because it does draw you in. It's about the allure of being a part of this thing, about finding the scoop, who you talk to, having the people you talk to and all that. It's so interesting and how the story plays out with that. It's just brilliant. I don't know how we're going to do this. I like, I don't know how to do this. Like I could talk to you endlessly about this movie until you ask me to talk to you endlessly about this movie because I don't know how far we want to go into this. It's just jokes. This is the story of Rosalind Russell's character, Hildy Johnson. I would argue my second favorite character to lead a movie next to Rick in Casablanca. I love Hildy. She is one of my favorite characters to ever exist. I think she's one of the coolest characters to ever exist. She is a woman that is so aware of the world she is in that it almost blinds her to any other world. And the fact that she thinks she can survive in another world is her lying to herself. And that's one of my hottest takes about this movie is that Hildy thinks she wants anything else than this, but the entire time she doesn't. And that is proven throughout. This is her returning to her paper at the Post where she is telling her ex-husband and her boss of the paper, Walter Burns, that she is leaving and she is getting married the next day. She is marrying this man she met named Bruce Baldwin and she's leaving the paper. And he's like, oh, no, no, you can't just leave the paper like that. No, we have the big Earl Williams case coming up. No, we have all this stuff that matters. And from the beginning, from the very beginning of this movie, the best thing to ever happen was putting Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell on screen. The chemistry is electric. You have two actors in still shots for like four minutes just acting and talking over each other without any break, without any need to stop. It is so impressive. Cary Grant, we have not talked about on this channel. He is one of those guys that is like... You know, you don't get George Clooney without Cary Grant. He's putting on a show. He's putting on a performance on screen and off screen. And every time he's in frame of this movie, you're looking at this guy who is so competent and complete in every single word he is saying. Every action he takes is because he loves his wife. The way he shows love for Hildy 
is through manipulating her and showing that he's an egotistical asshole. He's chauvinistic. He's not interested in her. That's his love language. And what Hildy realizes at the end, that's her love language too. She loves this guy from the beginning. Like the entire time, there's a moment where you don't buy she loves him. And they're so good together. And it's just these quick jokes, rapid fire, coming to you at every second. But he realizes that Bruce is in the building and he's going to take them to lunch to try to convince Hilly to stay and do the Earl Williams case. And you have the sequence where we first meet them in his office. It's brilliant. The sequence where he introduces himself to Bruce, where he shakes the older man's hand, that shakes the hand of the umbrella instead of actually touching Ralph Bellamy. It's genius, it's funny, it's Cary Grant doing that thing only he can do, that certified confidence that just comes out of existing and looking like Cary Grant. He nails it perfectly. Then they go to lunch, and it's just him slowly trying to convince Bruce to get Hildy to stay, but she's not buying it. We also realize that they don't have any real money, and if they take out a life insurance policy with Walter, they can get a little bit of extra cash from it. He's a prominent fella, and he's just a nice guy. And we all know a Bruce. I think everybody in this is probably more of a Bruce than they are a Walter, which is very understandable, and that's why Hildy has to go back to Walter throughout the piece is that you're just watching this guy still like one lap behind them in terms of everything they're talking about. He cannot talk as fast as Hildy. He cannot keep up with Walter. But Bruce still loves her and's like, you know, there's something about this guy that is charming. I know why he's not for you. He's kind of a smooth talker, but I can't say he's bad. And then somehow through sheer luck, Hildy has to go do the Earl Williams case. He's an innocent man who was being framed for the murder of a police officer. Uh-oh, how'd that happen? And as we see the interview of him and Hildy, she's trying to set up, like, you heard some communist people talking about, like, you know, the use of the product. You had a gun. That is what a gun is for. You fired it. You were coerced into doing this. Because they are a democratic paper, she's trying to spin the story a certain way. God, it's brilliant so brilliant it's such a brilliant use of that movie and that character like god damn i love all of that stuff just like okay she's gonna write this she's gonna write it in like the reporter's correspondent room of the courthouse where they're like outside getting ready to hang earl for his actions and then we are introduced to our ragtag crew of guys in the reporter room which I just love because you have like these six different fellas who are just playing poker. They have telephones set up everywhere and they're just getting their information. As soon as something happens, they have to rush out and do it. And they don't really care how the world perceives them or how they perceive the world. It's just brilliant. And then when you have, you know, Molly show up just desperately looking for like, you guys changed what I was to him in the paper. But this is the other thing I just absolutely love about the movie. They don't say lies, they just say the words in a way that doesn't sound right. Like, Molly does love Earl, but the way they put it in the paper where she's some sort of, like, slut running, like, a hen house, it's disgusting, and that is what upsets her. And you're like, oh, shit, that's bad. And also, like, later on, when you find that Earl Williams escapes because he gets the gun from the sheriff, because then they can capture him and persuade to get further votes letter, they were right about that, too. But, like, they just make it sound like the, like the sheriff's a dumbass, and he kind of is, and I love that. And they're all right. Like, they're all the smartest guys in that room until Hildy walks in, and then she's the one that's just to cut above them because she is the best reporter, and she can never leave this life. It's so brilliant and cool. I don't, again, like, it's just people talking, and it's just quick wit and witticisms coming at every corner. It's all so brilliant, and I don't know how much we can get into just, like, the actual dialogue of that. But Bruce gets arrested like so many different times, all because Walter's intervening to keep him in a place so he can keep Hildy here to do the story because he knows if Hildy writes the story, she's never going to want to leave the paper. Utter brilliance, utter masterclass of that. This is also, and we're jumping around a lot because, God, what is the order of this movie? Like, I, I can't spend all day talking about it. This is one of the coolest movies to have the use of telephones. You just got that old style telephone. You hold it to your ear. You're talking to the piece. It's people talking to operators. There are so many beautiful sequences throughout the piece where it's just people getting twisted up on the telephone when all the reporters are talking to their independent papers about what they need to do. When Hildy is just going back and forth between Walter and Bruce and everybody on the other line. It's so amazing, and it's just one of those great uses of, like, a prop. You have the power of the telephone at your disposal. It's not a, like, new invention, but still, like, a young enough concept where you can do something different with it. And this is a movie that's just, like, yeah, solely about the telephone. We're going to call people to do certain things happening on screen and off screen. It works great, and it looks great, and it's so much fun. And I just can't, I just can't get into how much... 
I love Rosalind Russell in this movie. Like, she is fantastic. When she first, like, starts to write the paper and then she realizes that Bruce was arrested because of something Louie did because he was hired by Walter and she's, like, fra frantically, like, calling the sheriff's office, like, keep him there. I'm on my way. Calling Walter, like, fuck you, Walter. You're messing up my life. And the entire time, she's, like, in a dizzy. She doesn't know where she put her hat that's on her head. She doesn't know how to put on her jacket. She's trying to escape. But she wrote the actual piece. It's some of the best writing that the guys in the newsroom have ever read. And she's like, you know what, Walter? You screwed me over again. I'm not giving you the piece. But that is her playing into his hand because that that is their love language, which I love. You have two people who are just clearly on the same wavelength the entire time. He is perfectly good at manipulating her and she is perfectly good at getting under his skin. And the two of them thrive under that condition more than any other condition. They need to be that person to each other in order for any of this to work. It's really strong. It's really cool. And then the back half of this movie is introducing us to three separate characters where it now becomes like a political satire. You have the sheriff, you have the mayor, and you have the correspondent from the governor, Betty Pone. And you just have these two guys who are like, this is going terribly. We're supposed to hang this guy. And now we have to like p p make a new plan so we could get reelected, but that's not going to happen. And Betty Pone shows up. Oh, man. It's Billy Gilbert, isn't it? I believe he is the one who plays Joel Pettibone. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm from the governor's office. So they gave me like this letter for you to like say, no, we have to not kill this guy. And they're like, what are you talking about? You never came here. We're, we're fine. Like, everything's fine. And he's like, no, I came here trying to be bribed by the mayor. But he's too clueless to see he's being bribed. And he's like, how oh, would you like a city planner job? He's like, what? And like, no. It's like, come on, your wife would love it. He's like, my wife, not my wife. It's like, oh, it's, it's utter brilliance. It's utter brilliance. Those three guys in that sequence, it's some of the funniest stuff ever. And that's why it's so hard to talk about. And then this movie kind of like spirals out of control as Earl ends up in like the newsroom. He is there with Hildy. Hildy is trying to figure out why Bruce was arrested again for like solicitation of a young woman. And it turns out that that woman was with Louie. And now she doesn't have any real money. And it's, everything's going poorly to plan, but she's got Earl. She can get the exclusive. So she calls Walter to come down here. We have him hiding in the desk. We have to get him from the desk into like a safe location. All the reporters come back. We also see that Molly comes back. The sheriff comes in. The mayor comes in. We see Bruce's mother comes in. All of these crowds of people just showing up to this one location with people screaming at each other and trying to manipulate each other and just trying to coerce each other into these stupid things. And it gets very intense and crazy, and Molly jumps out of the roof, and you're like, oh shit, why'd she do that? But she's not dead, she's okay. But it's just like, they realize that it's the sheriff's gun that Earl used to escape, and maybe he had it before, but he didn't have it before, and now the sheriff's in trouble. But because they got Earl, everything could kind of be okay. Like, oh my god, it, there's so many great sequences. And I don't know if I'm giving justice to Cary Grant enough kind of talking over his performance, but he's just so good at playing that stiff asshole. Like, there's nothing approachable or, like, every man about him. He has to kind of be, like, a cut above everyone, and that's what he does perfectly. When he, like, knocks on the door, it's like, you got enough air in there? Just kind of, like, whips in, well, here's some more. Like, it, it's hilarious, and it's so brilliant. And it just turns with Bruce being like, look, I had to wire Albany for the money where we were going to move. I don't know what they're going to think about me down there now. We find out later there's like strikes going on in Albany. So what's the point of even going there? And the mother gets like into a car accident and she gets kidnapped by Louie. And then it's just like, it's just these two people clearly still in love with each other. You have Walter and Hildy who clearly just like, they're on the same wavelength the entire movie, even if it is chaotic and anarchic. And they're just like, no. I know exactly what we need to do. We have to like get everyone out of this room, search the building if you have to, to find Earl. We have to find a way to get him out here. But it's just like a, a coy accident, you could say, by Walter that has them reveal that they have Earl in the place. And it leads to the arrest, the arrest of Walter and Hildy for their, you know, conspirating to like hide the murderer and all that stuff. But guess what? Pettybone shows back up at the end because he's like, you guys tried to bribe me, but you didn't. Then the governor's like fine with all this. Like I've been trying to tell you. And now Hildy and Walter have their blackmail against the sheriff and the mayor who tried to bribe a government official and they can walk out scot-free. They can also turn this into like a brilliant story and it's fantastic. And it kind of just ends with the two of them on these different phone calls. And she's trying to type away and you see that Ralph Bellamy shows up just like, uh, I'm going. I guess that's actually before, but like that's like the key moment where it's like he's going, she's she's stuck in this world now. As soon as she's behind that typewriter, she's lost and he can't have her. And now she's stuck here doing that, and it's the thing she's always wanted to begin with. And Walter's like, We're gonna take a vacation, we're gonna get married. She's like, We're getting married again. 
like a real one this time? You're actually gonna be a proper gentleman? He's like, I don't know, sure. Why not? Let's go to Niagara Falls. <laughs> You're like, hell yeah, let's go to Niagara Falls. Why wouldn't we, you know? God, it's so cool. And I, I know we're kind of breezing through the plot, but it's so fast. Like, every minute there's like 22 things that are said. It's never ending. It's just people talking over each other. You have so many great jokes. Like, you have the piece where it's like, we have to rewrite the entire paper. Get out the stuff about, like, the p politics. The story about the rooster, keep that in. That's human interest. I'm like, yeah, that's that's funny. That's a really good joke that I dig so much. So many supporting characters just showing in, talking over each other, saying stupid stuff. People behind the jokes, people in on the jokes. It's great. You know, uh, Lou, we get your girl to find that guy in the cab waiting down there. He kind of looks like actor uh, Ralph Bellamy, you know? Like, it's fourth wall breaking in a way that really works, and it's tongue-in-cheek. And I think only Cary Grant can really carry that weight. Like, he's so good at just presenting that type of energy in that chaotic, like, narrative. It's so much fun. But it's just too interesting people who have their own repertoire going fast for fast, bit for bit with each other about their love of the newspaper game and how much they like each other and this energy that they're exuding to specifically the other person. You have Rosalind Russell, who's hanging with the big dog. She is like the main dog of this place and she's going tit for tat with all of them. And she can't escape, but she's a news hound. She is stuck here. She'll never leave this world. And she loves it. She's in her element when she is writing. She's in her element when she's with these people. She loves it and she's the best at it. And she can never truly leave. And Bruce represents something that maybe she could have had if Walter wasn't in her life. But Walter is a person that she will always come back to and she can never leave and never escape. And that in itself is something that's very interesting and very fun and worth talking about. And His Girl Friday, it's from a stage play where the other character is not a woman, but like a friend of a guy. It works better when you have two people who love to hate each other and hate to love each other and have a great connection through it. This is a perfect movie. It is the perfect script. If you want to know how like to do a fast-paced joke where everyone's talking over each other or how you get your wires crossed in conversation, this is how you do it. It is fantastic on every conceivable level and one of my favorite films ever made. It is in the top three for me. What is my third movie? Well, we might have talked about it. We might not have. I guess you'll find out later. It's Percy Jackson in the Olympian times, everybody. It's the lightning thief time. Percy Jackson time. Reboot coming out very soon. So I said, let's go back and watch that original YA movie from 2010 <laughs> that I have no fondness for. I've talked about this numerous times. There was a phase that's kind of now hashtag Tumblr core where it's like, the Greek gods and like the lore of that, all that shit was like really prominent to an entire generation of people growing up. My generation. I know a lot of friends and family that fucking love Percy Jackson in this entire universe. And even back then in 2010, when I was a wee boy, I didn't get it. <laughs> I still don't get it. Is it because they're idiots? Like just a bunch of like fucked up gods running about being in charge of the world? I don't, I really don't get it. I still don't get it. Nothing about this reboot looked interesting to me either. And going back to watch this one, I haven't seen it since 2010, maybe. Maybe I saw it a couple times. I have no recollection of it because there's events that happened in the sequel I thought happened in this one because I don't think I've seen the sequel. But then I'm like, the one thing I remember didn't happen in this movie, so I must have saw the sequel. I have no recollection of this movie. But I watched it anyway, so it's The Lightning Thief. Uh, Percy Jackson, the boy who lived to volunteer distribute, uh, he's the son of, uh, Poseidon. Um, he's played by Logan Lerman in this movie. You, you might recognize Logan Lerman. Be, I don't know. Maybe you won't. Cause what else has he done besides this? Really? <laughs> he had a moment, you know, he was going to be something for a moment. He's a dad now, isn't he? That's weird to think about. Whatever. Okay, cool. Percy Jackson time. Uh, so somebody steals Zeus's thunderbolt or his lightning bolt, I guess, because it's the lightning thief. And he, Zeus thinks it's Poseidon's son, his bastard son named Percy. And it's not, but it opens up a question I have about the universe. And that is, uh, how come nobody knew who took the bolt? It's, it's the one thing that really upsets me about this universe is that 
every single person that they interact with, like the collective trio that goes on their adventure, they know that the lightning bolt is missing and that Percy Jackson might have taken it. But, but, nobody knows that's not true. And I don't understand that. Like, you all know it's missing, but none of you know who took it. Like, how can you... Like, the, the the gods of the fucking universe not know who took the lightning bolt. I don't get that. But whatever. Percy Jackson, he, he like, lives with his mom and his abusive stepdad. And uh, they go to, like, his school goes to, like, a museum where they're talking about, like, the Greek gods. And Pierce Brosnan is, like, his teacher or something. And uh, he looks fucking hot in this movie. Sorry, Pierce Brosnan, super sexy in this movie for some reason. <laughs> we'll get to the other people in this movie I like more than the main cast. But god damn, he looks great. Uh, he's like, Percy, do you know the name of this demigod? He's like, Perseus. And it's not you. You're not Perseus, though. You're, per I, you're Percy? I don't know. So, okay. <laughs> Did I didn't read the book. So if you read the books, please explain it to me. Does Poseidon have two sons named Percy? Like Perseus and Percy Jackson. Okay. At the museum, they're attacked by a harpy. And then they the Grover, who's his friend, who has like crutches, they have to take him to Camp Half-Blood to be safe. They're attacked by a minotaur on the way there. Percy kills a minotaur. Okay. <laughs> it's a wild opening because you're just like, we're doing it in 30 minutes, folks. This in the new show is probably going to be a, an episode that's 50 minutes long of itself. But here you go. In and out. There's the information. Who gives a shit? It's happening. Uh, right off the bat, Percy Jackson, not a character I'm in love with. I like him more than other like these young adult leads because he seems very indifferent to the world around him. And it might be that they're trying to play him neurodivergent, but they're not going to say that in 2010. So he has like ADHD and he's dyslexic. What they pass it off is like, you're not meant to read English. What? Okay. That's strange. So uh, I don't, we don't need to get into that. It doesn't matter. But Lerman is an actor who's kind of fun when you see him in stuff, I guess. But this being the only thing he's done, so I don't know. Yeah, he's cool. You know, I like him more than, like, other people in YA stuff. But, I again, I think he's kind of, like, he dumb lucks his way through a lot of this. And he gets really lucky. But they also, I'll excuse it because he is, like, the son of, like, the number two most powerful god in Olympus. So, like, his power is strong. I guess. I don't know. Uh, so he goes to camp. I check out with all the camp stuff. Couldn't give a shit about them going to camp. It's like, cool. Here's all these kids of, like, gods and stuff. I love that they explain it like, the gods are horny. They just need to, like, lay. And they get laid. Then they leave. And then, like, Pierce Brosnan shows up as a horse and is like, take your kid to my camp. I guess that's the movie. And then Hades, like, they have, like, a capture of the flag thing. It doesn't matter. He takes over, like, the daughter of Athena. And that, God, that leads me to my biggest complaint about this movie. Annabeth sucks. What did she do? She did absolutely nothing in this movie. And look, Alexandra Daddario, is she pretty? Absolutely. A stunning, gorgeous woman. Can she act? A question we're asking to this day, isn't it? In this, she's pretty. Can she act? No, but Lerman can't really act either. He's got like a, are you kidding me kind of voice? Like, bro, this is insane. And I guess that's like acting. And, and, you know, the guy playing Grover, he's doing the thing you'd ask, like, a young African-American man to do in this type of movie in 2010. So I can't be mad at the choices they make him do. They're just bad and dumb. So Percy, like, defeats, a, like, Annabeth and, like, capture the flag or something. He also, like, teams up with Luke, the son of Hermes, who, shocker, my favorite character, who's of, like, the young generation, because he's right. He's the one that steals the lightning bolt, and he's like... Actually, these gods are kind of hoity-toity. I think if we started a war, our generation could take over. Hell yeah, dude. Your generation isn't going to go around, like, raping women. So yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That should happen. Good for you, Luke. Smart. 
You should cause a war. Hades seems like the only rational guy here. I'm being completely honest. You should be on his side. But fuck it. Capture the flag happens. We root for them. We have like a bonfire. Some like nymphs like think Percy's cute and they want to like dance with him at a party or something. Hades shows up in a fire. He's like, Percy Jackson, give me the lightning bolt. He's like, I don't have it, bro. But you have my mom because my mom died of the Minotaur, but she vanished into the Hades world. It doesn't matter. Look, having just watched Hades Town, I was really interested in the stuff of Hades. <laughs> like, that's where I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I'd rather see that shit than this shit. So what happens is Percy Jackson needs to go on a mission with Annabeth and Grover, his two new friends who are, are there. And they got to go across America to get three pearls to go to the underworld because Persephone leaves pearls behind. So some of her suitors are just people she wants to bang and show up. And then, cool. okay, cool. So what does that lead to? We have to go to New Jersey to fight Medusa in her lair. I don't understand why Medusa would be in New Jersey. I also realize this would be the moment I fail in the mission because Uma Thurman is Medusa. And I'm not supposed to look at Uma Thurman. I'm not supposed to look at Uma Thurman. Sorry. That's all I want to do. I could give two shits about, you know, a big war impending from stealing a lightning bolt. I'm looking at Uma Thurman. They defeat her by cutting off her head and keeping it in a bag. Then they go to Nashville and they fight like a Hydra inside like a big like temple of whatever the hell it is. I don't know. I've been to Greece and I can't remember the name that we call these buildings. <laughs> God, it's so boring. Like it's like... It, it looks better than today's visual effects, but God, it's so lame. It's so boring, honestly. So that happens. Uh, they get another pearl. They go to Vegas. Uh, what happens in Vegas? So yeah, like the weird, like they get high on lotus flowers and they're trapped there for a while. I guess it's a magical place where no one could escape because there's a guy playing the French Connection pinball machine that thinks it's 1971. And I'm like, that is the most strange that's the most strange name drop for a movie you can put in a young adult movie. What young adult watching this in 2010 knows about the French Connection? That is so weird. And you know he's old because he's dressed like a hippie? Okay. Very weird. Not on the nose, but I guess kids are fine with that. I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, some boring stuff happens. Percy snaps out of it because his dad, played by Tommy from Train Spotting, is like, don't eat the flowers, you dumbass. You have to get out of there. That takes them to Hollywood where they go to the underworld. And this is this is this is where Taryn is happy. OK, he he is like, OK, I, I don't need these kids going on a mission randomly killing medusa and the hydra like ooh, so easy look at them they did so well where i am suddenly my happiest you know we head to the underworld we go to a temple and then who shows up rosario dawson as persephone and i fall in love all over again and she's super into grover and i am i'm in love i'm like okay whatever she wants that's where i'm going I'm doing that now. Hades, played by Steve Coogan, dressed like a fucking insane Chris Angel parody. <laughs> He's just like, you have the bolt, boy. It's like, no, I don't. He's like, it's in your shield. I could see it. You lied to me. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I love it so much. I love that stuff so much. Rosario Dawson, utterly attractive, okay? Her Persephone is so horny and so much hates her husband. I adore it to no end. She's like, I don't care if there's a war. I have to be trapped with this piece of shit. I don't want that. And Hades just looks like a Mick Jagger ripoff. And it's so cool. That's pretty funny. So they defeat that. They leave and they go to Olympus. First, they fight Luke, whatever. It. Percy learns he's special and he uses water to defeat the, the, the like flying guy with his like flying Converse shoes. He goes to Olympus with Annabeth and he's like, I didn't steal shit but here's your shit. You guys are annoying and losers. Don't fight. Fuck you. And then he leaves and uh, movie over, wrap it up, credits, you know, uh, save the day. You get it. I don't, I don't like this. Like, I have never been drawn to the Greek mythology or like you're special because you're like connected to a God. I don't give a shit about any of that, but I wanted to watch a good movie and this wasn't that. The effects look really good. The writing is so 2010. And God, I don't know, like the acting is very stiff, but there are a few moments 
where Pierce Brosnan and Uma Thurman and Rosario Dawson and Steve Coogan show up looking sexy as all hell. And then the movie's just like, oh, this world's crazy, but why don't we play Capture the Flake some more? Why don't we train some more for a war that's never coming? I don't understand God stuff. I never really liked it that much. I think this this lore is stupid. And to everyone I, I know in my personal life that might be watching this and is upset at me for saying Percy Jackson is stupid and this movie's kind of boring and lame and didn't really do anything and everyone kind of just gets lucky with every action they have. It's more like Persephone does everything. Uh, it's a bad, bad stuff. And I never read the book. I don't know. I'm sure it's going to end boringly. I wanted to talk about the second one, but I'm like, no, I don't. I really don't want to. So this universe, hey... Logan Lerman's doing great. He's in everything these days, and so is Alexandra Daddario. So cool. Everybody came out on top. This franchise didn't die before it started. No, it's still going strong. This reboot doesn't look bad at all. Cool, man. Stuff. <laughs> I don't know about this one. I really don't. Don't like it, but Persephone's got the vibe I like. <laughs> oh, Lucky Grover. That's good shit. I don't know the rest of it. Don't care. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year's Eve. If you are, in fact, watching this on New Year's Eve, I hope you are, because this is our New Year's Eve special. I figured, what a way to go out of 2023, a very chaotic year in the film industry. So let's talk about a film, the final film we'll talk about this year, that is just one of the most insane things ever made. New Year's Eve is the name of this film. A perfect little little joy of a movie. Now, I'd have to really sit down and think about it. This, <laughs> this may be the most... It's definitely the, the most bizarre film we've talked about on Movie Tales. It's definitely in the bottom five, bottom three, bottom... Is it the worst one? Is New Year's Eve the worst movie I'm going to talk about on this channel? Maybe. <laughs> this was... This was abysmal. This was just a lot of things missing the mark. I mean, you have a writer who worked on Valentine's Day before this, with Gary Marshall, of course. So you got like a double pairing, another Marshall, Marshall feature. And Valentine's Day, not any better than this one, but at least you can like spin it off. It like, we got away with it the first time. <laughs> this, there's no, there's no reason for it. And we're skipping Valentine's Day. I don't need to talk about that one because who cares? It's Valentine's Day. People are in love, but it's New Year's Eve. Anything can happen. You know, it's New York City. We're going to see a city of love in a time when all of like downtown gets turned into like a big, big center for people to watch a ball drop. I'm not, I'm not from New York. I don't know if this matters. I guess it does. Ryan Seacrest can show up and do his thing. I'm sure they filmed on location for the actual New Year's Eve, whatever they do down there for a minute. Like, cause they got Seacrest on a stage like that. That can't be easy. Or is it? What does he have really going on? It's 2011. It's not the height of Seacrest, but it's like you could... He's still like a joke, you know? Where you could make a reference to somebody named Ryan Seacrest and the general populace would still understand what you're talking about. So that's like good, I guess. Right? There's just so much about this film that's just whack. You know, a writer who has never worked on any major movie after this... Sorry to say, I guess, I don't think you deserve to, because this is a really bad script with terrible characters and just poorly made. Gary Marshall, 76 when this movie comes out, clearly a, a man of the people. Him in this, him making this movie does seem like the De Niro scenes where you're like, just let me die. Let me get this out and then I could die. Not happily, but just die. And I'm like, yeah, that would be pretty nice. Oh, man. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to talk about this movie because it's, it's New Year's Eve. It could come out on New Year's Eve. The symmetry, the fun. And there's maybe other movies that would have been more enjoyable to talk about, like the backlog. I'm like, okay, I know what I'm going to go into 2024 hoping to talk about. But before that, let's just get this one out of here. So this might be a little different than the standard videos we've done for Movie Tales solely because there's no plot to this. It's vignettes. And most of them are like happy ending and love vignettes. And some of them are truly insane, like egregiously insane, like John Lithgow sitting in a huge office 
telling Michelle Pfeiffer she can't get a raise because he's busy playing Angry Birds. Insane. How 2012 can you get? You know, like, like we're coming into this new year. We haven't had an Avengers movie yet. Like, the world's just different. And it kind of sucks. And to think that this meant anything to anybody is truly insane because this is perhaps the most stupid film ever put to screen. And it's truly uninspired on every level. So I'm not even going to like really get into this. I'm going to whip out my phone. And what we're going to do instead of like actually breaking down the plot, I'm going to look at the cast list on Google and we're going to go through the entire cast and talk about like their chunks of the story and how they wrap up. So the top build according to Google is Michelle Pfeiffer and Zac Efron, who coincidentally, they're going to be in the thumbnail for this video. They they share screen time together. Zac Efron's is like a Postmates guy or something. He's like a delivery guy that you could hire out to deliver stuff for you. Efron slowly moving away from like the youthful guy from the high school musical stuff he's breaking out he's a real film star now look at his 2011 haircut and how skinny and small he is what is what, he he's a really small guy in this movie and that that's nothing but he like delivers stuff to an office and michelle pfeiffer is just quirky and uncomfortable and like neurotic and nervous and can't really talk and she wants to do more of her life and when it finds out she's not getting like a race to go on the vacation she already booked off, she quits her job. And then she hires Zac Efron because it's New Year's Eve and she's done nothing with her life to take her on a quest to complete the things she wished she'd done. So they travel New York City. They go to like a, a big spa. They go to a, a, like a stage where she can pretend she's like in a production or something. They travel around fountains. They ride on a little moped it's truly insane. It's a truly it's, it's it's a truly insane thing to see happen because you're like who who is the person that decided this would be like the good pairing? Is it the main it's not really like the main story. I think like Swank or Do Hamill's the main story. I don't know, but just to see these two show up and they do stuff together. And the entire time you're like there is chemistry here. Is it because they're both really good actors and they're doing a lot of little? I have three people in this movie I think did actually good job with the acting stuff. I guess we could get that now because my first one is Michelle Pfeiffer. She's actually playing a character who has like neuroses and isn't good at like talking or acting. She seems nervous. I love the end of the movie where it's like the credits and she's like doing really stiff dancing with Efron. That's really funny. She seems uncomfortable at every moment. It's an actual character. That's pretty exciting. The second one, Yardley Smith. She's in here for one sequence, and she's just like, oh, love, isn't that grand? And I'm like, that is believable. So Yardley Smith, I talked about, we have talked about two Yardley Smith movies on this thing now, which is really insane to think about. Like, why is that? Why is she a staple on this now? I don't understand why movie tells goes to Yardley Smith movies. The third one is Sarah Paulson, who's in like four sequences, maybe for 20 seconds each time. And... You just like she's gonna be a real actress one day, <laughs> and some of the people she's working against are not gonna be. And that's insanity. We'll get to her in a minute, but the Michelle Pfeiffer stuff, she's great. Afron's young. They kiss at the end on New Year's because he's like, I learned a lesson today. I don't want to be the person I've always been. I don't want to be like the cool, fun uncle. I want to be like a serious man and date this woman who's like 29 years older than me. I guess is the lesson. I mean, I'd believe it. Good lesson. Next up is Robert De Niro. He's in a hospital bed the whole movie, and he's like, I don't want to die until I see the ball drop. Too much pressure on New Year's, man. That's insane. We learn later why that is. We'll get to we'll get back to that when it's like, the big reveal happens, whatever. It, he wants to die. Carrie always is his doctor, and he's like, sucks, man. If you die before that, I don't know. Shit, dude. And then his nurse is also Halle Barry and you're like okay why did she sign up to this and then her we'll just get to her story right now because it means nothing she her husband is like overseas and it's common so they talk on screen common clearly filming on a different day not talking to anybody specifically no reaction from him like they just shot his head and put an like an inanimate body what the hell was that <laughs> but the Nero his daughter comes to visit him eventually because it's like the one thing he had wrong with his life and they spend some time watching the ball drop and then he instantly dies like the ball drops and then he's dead and you're like that is truly an insane thing to happen 
in this movie. I I have no words to describe just how weird that is. And De Niro, look, he loves a paycheck where he just gets to sit. I think that's amazing. And I want him to sit in every movie because I think he's good at sitting. Hilary Swank is next on the list. She, I guess, is the main character. She is the... She's like the vice president of the Times Square Alliance. So she's in charge of making sure the ball drops. But wouldn't you know it, she's a little crazy herself. She doesn't know how to like go upstairs because it's high, it's high up and it's scary. So someone has to carry her. She's like late to an important date or something. And, you know, it's her big break and she doesn't want to screw it up. But the ball stops working and we have to fix it. So she has... She plays with a couple of different actors. The first one she plays off of is Ludacris, who delivers each line like he would rather be anywhere else. And I can't blame him. I've never seen someone less want to do something in their lives than be in this room doing this very thing. It's crazy. She has a scene where she talks to the president of the Times Square Alliance, played by Matthew Broderick, and his name is Buellerton. We're not even pretending anymore. And that was the, not the most egregious thing I saw in this movie, but the what it was where I went, I guess in 2011, we could get away with this. But if you tried this today, I would run onto the screen and punch everybody involved because that is stupid and dumb. And she, they play it up with like, oh, she's late to like meeting a guy or something, like a regret she had. And it connects to another story you think is going to connect later. But no, she's actually the daughter of De Niro. And when the ball drops, she's with him when he dies in the hospital. Is that good? Hillary Swank. Do you remember when we tried to make her a big star? Two-time Oscar winner, Hillary Swank. She was fine. The next actor we have to talk about is Josh Duhamel. Do you remember that week or that year, I should say, when like, this is such a 2011 movie because half the cast is just like people we wanted to make happen in that era. And we'll get to all their stories, but like Catherine Heigl, Jessica Biel, Ashton Kutcher, Josh Hamill, like all these people, you're like, they're going to be big. We know what to do with them. And then they don't become anything. And sometimes they support Danny Masterson and it's like, okay, whatever. But Josh Hamill, we, we open up with him. He's on the outskirts of New York. He's in a church. His best friend just got married. Immediately after his best friend gets married, he's like, don't you worry, Josh Hamill, you're going to fall in love. He's like, Maybe, but he's got to go do a speech at a thing, so he has to leave right away. But he crashes his car because his GPS doesn't know what New York is. Fart, funny, jokes, good time. So he has to get a ride with, like, the priest of the church and his family. And he's married to Yardley Smith, so he announces, like... Last New Year's Eve, I met, like, a really nice girl, and she left me a note saying, like, if you still love me in a year, come back to this place and we'll love each other forever because it's true love. So then his plot becomes, like, is he going to be, like, the swinging bachelor forever? Is he going to settle down with this, like, mysterious unknown woman who we think is Hilary Swank, but it's not. He plays this with the charisma of, like, a dumb guy, and I, I guess that's accurate. Like, the dumb guy has to learn his lesson. I think we kind of did that in Valentine's Day, too, where, like, there's, like, this you know, football player, he's like a swinging bachelor. Is he going to sell down? Turns out he's gay and he's like in a relationship with the guy on the plane. I might be thinking of a completely different movie than that one, but I don't know. Maybe that's the one I'm talking about. What's next? Catherine Heigl. <laughs> Catherine Heigl in the weirdest plot of this movie. Let's break it down right away. She runs a catering service because she like caters big affairs. She has two employees for her coincidentally like the two characters of color outside of Ludacris and common if you could call them characters as opposed to these two men who just say their lines and then go home you have Sofia Vergara who is like I'm sexy and I'm horny and I know Bon Jovi's coming and then Russell Peters who's like I know it's a joke of this accent I'm doing so it's kind of funny right wink wink Russell Peters another guy right out of 2011 but she runs this catering company and she's catering this affair where Jensen is playing and Jensen is the Bon Jovi character. John Bon Jovi plays somebody that's not himself in this movie, some guy named Jensen. Okay, sure, why not just say you're playing Bon Jovi? It doesn't matter. But Catherine Heigl was actually dating Bon Jovi in this movie. And you think that'd be weird because you're like, Bon Jovi, he's old, right? He's 49 when he makes this, which blew me away because every time I think of Bon Jovi, I'm like, you're older than you are, but you're in your 60s when the rest of these cats are like in their 70s. So you're actually like younger than them. And that weirded me out for some reason. Very strange. But he proposed, but he backed out because like he couldn't commit because of his tour or something. So they have like a 
strained relationship. And Sofia Vergara's like, hey, I'll, you know, ride the Bon Jovi train slippery when wet. Am I right? Whatever. I don't know. Funny. And then so he's going to perform at this function. It's also the function Do Hamill has to do the speech for. And Heigl's catering it. Yeah. And it's whatever. Next on our list. Oh, this will be a fun one to bring up. Abigail Breslin. She plays the daughter of Sarah Jessica Parker. And uh, she's not, she's like an overbearing mom who's like, you can't go out on New Year's Eve. I want to stay in and play with you or something. She's like, mom, the hot kid from Wizards of Waverly Place wants to kiss me, mom. You got to let me go out, mom. What's that kid's name? Austin or something? Max Austin? It doesn't matter. Wizards of Waverly Place kid is hanging out with his friends. He wants to kiss Abigail Breslin. So she sneaks out to go hang out with her friends. Now, this is written by a woman. <laughs> this is a movie written by a woman. And I think you can really get a sense that a woman wrote this in the sequence that is Abigail Breslin playing a canonically 15-year-old character in this movie, lifting up her shirt, showing her bra, and saying to her mom, this isn't for training because she's a grown woman. You can definitely tell this was written by a female in a sequence like that. What the hell? That was um, that. I'm not on board with any of this movie, but I see that. I'm like, what are we doing? Did we really have to spend a sequence showing Abigail Breslin, who was young in this movie, lifting her shirt? Very strange. And that could lead us to Sarah Jessica Parker, who, surprise, she's actually the one that Josh Duhamel wants to meet. It's not Hillary Swank. She's going to go watch her father die on top of a hospital. We're actually going to see the love story of the century. The guy from one of the Transformers, maybe. And just like that's own. But like a decade before that, Sarah Jessica Parker. They're going to kiss. They're going to be happy. Because she was reckless in her day. And guess what? She's also the sister to Zac Efron's character. They have to be 15 years apart at the latest. It's got to be more. Because Efron at this era, he's played like he's 24. And that's like... And then you could say Pfeiffer's playing like she's 55. And then at that era, I don't, like, because, like, I guess it would make sense if, like, Sarah Jessica Parker was playing 30-ish, 30, mid-30s-ish. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. What other characters do we have in here? Okay, here's a fun one. This can knock off a couple characters, because I don't want to talk about Bon Jovi. He's a bad actor. He's not an actor. But he sings a couple songs in here that are kind of holiday-themed. It doesn't matter. Jessica Beale's in this movie. She plays a pregnant woman at the hospital she's at. Her husband, Seth Myers. They learn through Sarah Paulson and her husband that the first baby born in the new year at this hospital, that family gets $25,000. So then this plot line is how do we induce labor to make that muddy? And you'd think it'd be funny hijinks. But actually what it is, is like random facts about how to induce labor that may or may not be true. And Seth Meyers showing you why he went to late night because he can't act. And Beale seems really bored and nobody in this scene is having any fun. And at the end of the day, the other family with Sarah Paulson gets the money because they have more kids. And Myers is like, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I hate working like this, though. I think I don't want to do SNL. I think I don't want to do this. I think late night's for me. You can feel the gears turning in this guy's head like, I don't want to act. This is miserable and stupid. And maybe you're right, Seth. <laughs> maybe you're right. If you want to see Jessica Biel, like, pretend she's, like, having a baby, and it's like, oh, this is so painful. And then, like, her her nurse is Carla Gugino, and she's, like a, like, a modern, you know, like, ooh, it's all in, like, the aura and the feelings. We have to have positive vibes to make this work truly insane makes no sense Alyssa Milano is also a nurse in this movie and you're just like how many nurses do we need for this movie it's insufferable and annoying and it's not the worst plot line because the worst one is Ashton Kutcher and Leah Michelle stuck in an elevator Ashton Kutcher playing a comic book artist he's an illustrator and that sucks right away he doesn't like New Year's Eve because it's like, it's stupid. It's not a real holiday. We celebrate being in love. He had his heart broken. Who gives a shit? He's trapped in an elevator with Leah Michelle. She's a backup singer for Bon Jon Jovi's Jensen. She has to get to the big show. And she's stuck with a guy who hates New Year's. And then she sings for him. And he's like, cool. And then 
what's my least favorite scene in a movie full of my least favorite scenes. Like, uh, it's truly so stupid. But again, it's 2011. We're not at the era where comic books are respected. Not that they are now because they're not, but we're not the era where like comic book artists are like people that people like in like a big scale. So what does he do to show he's a comic book illustrator? He draws a girl being attacked by just a basic robot, like literally no skill. Like anybody you know could have drawn that picture. It does not prove he's a good artist at all. It is the simplest, most lazy design to show you that that's what people in this era, that's what Gary Marshall, 76 year old dude, thinks a comic book looks like. Truly the most egregious thing. He learns at the end though that he, he loves the holiday or something stupid, I don't know. All right, we did Leah Michelle, we did Sarah Jessica Parker, Halle Berry. Hector Elizondo plays Kaminsky. He's the guy that's got to fix the ball. It's kind of a racist role, but it's fine. Did Bon Jovi, did Sofia Vergara, did Ludacris, did Seth Meyers, did Ryan Seacrest. Penny Marshall's in this. She's pretty cool. Good to see that. We did Carla. Jake T. Austin, that's his name. That's the guy's name. Catherine McNamara is in this. Okay, sure sure if you want to say that i don't believe it who else is on here nobody else that really matters jim belushi's the building super okay i guess look if you want we did the yardley smith uh what a stupid movie what a stupid like i just listed you a bunch of stupid plots none of them would make a good movie if it was just that story. But if you combine all like seven or eight of those plot lines, like Bon Jovi's a singer and he's, he wanted to date a caterer and he proposed, but he had to leave. And her staff's like racistly weird because they're just like comically stereotypical people. And it's stupid and insane. And then they like flirt later and they get together. Everybody gets together. Everybody gets the happy ending kiss and whatever. And you you just hate all of them for it. They're all the worst people you can imagine getting everything they've ever wanted and you just want them like the best part is when De Niro dies because there's closure in like an actual real way and that's really nice to know like okay he doesn't have to live in this insufferable world anymore truly wholeheartedly the most egregious annoying disturbed stupid arrogant film I have seen in a very long time and I do not have any respect for it I do not think it is funny I was more off-put by the actions that are so comically stupid. Even for a stupid rom-com feeling movie, nothing made sense. Nothing in the universe felt real or organic or like, this is cheeky, it's just lazy. And I can sum that all up with John Lithgow sitting in his office, playing Angry Birds, clearly aiming his phone. He aims it so poor that he should not be saying, I need to get the three pigs. You should not say that. You should say, oh, this shot sucked. I'm going to hit the wall because you're that bad at it. Truly an insane experience. But happy New Year's Eve, everyone. I hope you enjoy it. I hope this year was worth it for you. When we come back in the new year, I can guarantee we'll talk about better or worse movies depending on how you look at things. Probably better, because they're not this. So thank you everyone for watching this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. As always, you can check me out on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, I will catch you in the next one. Have fun. Stay safe. Happy New Year's Eve. Unless you're watching this later, then I'm sorry.